I want to invite you to open up in your copy of the Bible to Mark 12. We've been going through Mark for a while now. And we're now at the beginning of chapter 12. As you're heading there. I don't know if you watched it. Back in 2009, January 18th, when Gene Robinson, an Episcopal priest, was asked to pray at Barack Obama's presidential inauguration. He began his prayer with these words. O God of our many understandings. L.R. Mongo, a contributor for the Oregonian, encapsulated the religious outlook of many in our generation when she wrote, God, Allah, Yahweh, the Creator, the One, the Energies, goes by as many names in this country as ever. I do believe that God is in everyone. Though by what name he resides there, seems to me, to be up to the person in question. She defended this statement not by saying that it is true, but by saying that believing such things in our generation is simply considered good manners. I found that interesting, that the truthfulness of that statement about the nature of God is not what matters, What matters, actually, is that we're all tolerant of one another, that it's good manners to see every belief system as legitimate in its own way, as valid, as an approach to God that might be different from yours, but nonetheless is okay, and that God is actually quite tolerant himself of every expression of religion in the world. As long as you're sincere, it is worship to God. But we have to pause and ask ourselves, Not whether or not it's good manners, but is that really what God is like? What is God like? How do we know what God is actually like? I find it interesting that even an atheist who would not believe in any sort of God would, if he understood the claims of Christianity or of Islam and Mormonism or Buddhism or Hinduism or any variety of religions in the world would not think that these are compatible religions. That anyone who knows what these religions claim would understand that they are fundamentally at their core incompatible with one another. And yet there are many people, even ones who profess to be Christians, who claim that Jesus simply taught that so long as we love one another and don't judge anyone, well, God is pleased with that. They may not have ever read anything Jesus said if that's what they believe. So the question, what is God actually like, is the most important question you could ever ask. What is God like? I mean, we are people who do do not claim that God is merely a figment of our imagination, that we can ascribe to him whatever qualities we like. We are those who believe that God exists externally to ourselves. He is objectively real. And so we do not get to make up God. We have to have God reveal himself to us. And this is how we come to know God. I want to ask you, 
What do you think God is like? And a second question. Those ideas that you have about God, where did they come from? Our lives are like a ship going through the sea and over time collects barnacles of bad ideas or errors of thinking in our conception of what the world is like and what God is like. And so that is why it is one of the many reasons we are continually coming back to the scriptures to discover what God has said about himself. Rather than trying to intuit our way to God, to make up an image of God in our minds, an idea of God, which actually is idolatry, we need to come and understand what is it that God has said about himself. And we are Christians who believe that the Bible is the word of God. And that when we learn from Jesus, he is revealing the Father to us. He's revealing what God is actually like. So we don't need to play any guessing game when we're trying to determine the nature and character of God. We simply need to understand what the Bible teaches. And in this particular section, it reveals to us something about God that many people don't like to think about. Many people want to push off to the side or put in the... Um, marginalize this truth, but I want to uh, study it freshly to understand what is God saying about himself and what is Jesus in particular saying about the nature of God and what he's doing with us and what he's doing with the world. And so we're here to look at the Bible to understand what it has to say about God. And I want to read to you the section that we're going to be studying. It's there in Mark chapter 12. We're going to look at the verses, the first 12 verses of this chapter. Chapter 12, verses 1 to 12. And let me just give you some background real quick we're going to jump in so we got the context. If you remember, this section of Mark, we're at the final week of Jesus' life. You got that? Remember? He came in on a Sunday to the, uh, the uproar of the crowd celebrating his coming, his arrival. He's the son of David. This is the Messiah. Many uh, were announcing that or proclaiming that. There was excitement in the air. On Monday, he came in on his way in from Bethany. That's where he was staying for the nights. He came in. He cursed that fig tree. Remember, it was all leaves, no fruit. It was a symbol of the hypocrisy of Israel. He then went into Israel's temple there in Jerusalem, and there he cleared the place. He, he turned it upside down. He turned over tables. He stopped the sacrificial system. It was a symbolic move. He was symbolizing the judgment that was to come on Israel. That's what he was doing. It was judgment. That was on Monday. He left Monday evening, went back to Bethany on Tuesday on his way back into the city. He taught on faith. He taught on prayer. He taught on forgiveness. And then he got back to the temple and he began teaching again. And as he began teaching, you remember from a couple of weeks ago, the uh, religious elite of the time sent in a kind of a little bit of a delegation to confront Jesus. They wanted to really embarrass him. That's what they were doing. They wanted to discredit him. And so the chief priests, the scribes and the elders came and they confronted Jesus. And the, you remember what they tried to do? They tried to ask him about what authority he had to do what he had been doing. Like, who are you to come into our temple to turn things over, to shut the place down? Who do you think you are? By what authority are you doing these things? Well, Jesus turns out, turns the tables on them and ends up embarrassing them. They are discredited and they end up being proven to have no authority of their own. And they... Uh, before the crowds, remember everyone's watching, Jesus tells them, I'm not going to tell you by what authority I do these things. 
because they wouldn't have accepted his answer anyway. And if you look there in chapter 12 now, verse 1, it's a continuation of this interaction with these particular people. Remember, chief priests, scribes, elders, these are the religious leaders, these are the big guys, the big wigs, the fat cats, these are the ones that everyone in Israel would have looked up to. They were the well-educated, they were the ones that were honored, these were the ones that were leaders. And now Jesus, he doesn't tell them by what authority he's going to, he's doing the things he's doing. Now he begins to teach them but with parables. You see that in verse 1. He began to speak in parables to them, which is a way of concealing and revealing at the same time. Let me read this section, and then we'll begin to work through it and unpack it. And he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower and leased it to tenants, and went into another country. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent to them another servant. And they struck him on the head, and they treated him shamefully, he sent another, and him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat, and some they killed. He still had one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them, saying, They will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come. Let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. They took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people. For they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So they left him and went away. Jesus now with this parable has gotten the attention of everyone. And let me just summarize what Jesus is saying. By, saying, by the way, this is the, the main stage. This is the big show. This is, remember, he's not only in Jerusalem, he's in the temple. He's not only in the temple, he's in the temple during Passover week, which means hundreds if not thousands have come in as pilgrims to enter Jerusalem so that they could make their sacrifices that week. They are all around him. I imagine the place is packed. And at this point in the interchange, I think there's silence as everyone kind of gathers around to watch what's going on here and to listen what Jesus is going to say to these people. The big idea of this section, it's kind of in your face. And it's, in, it's fitting with what Jesus has been saying to these people ever since they began to reject him. It's essentially this. 
The rejection of God's Son results in the coming of God's judgment. You see that? The rejection of God's Son results in the coming of God's judgment. In other words, Jesus is very clear on this, not all religions are true. God does not tolerate all lifestyles. It is not that we can just imagine God as we like him, believe that he is the way we want him to be, and then hope that it all turns out. No, God exists outside of us and objective to us, and he is who he says he is. And here, Jesus speaks a parable about God giving judgment to those who have rejected him. So we're going to work through this in three parts. I want us to see this in three parts. One, we're going to see God's vineyard in verses 1 to 2. We're going to see Israel's rejection in verses 3 to 8. And then we're going to see God's judgment in verses 9 to 11. And along the way, I think we're going to learn a lot about God, about ourselves, about how to respond to God and who he is. Let's start with God's vineyard. Look there in verse 1. God's vineyard. This is the story. The man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it. And dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower. So the story begins pretty quaintly. We meet in this parable, which is something of an allegory. There's different points of the parable that you can point to realities that Jesus is teaching about. So this hardworking man invests time, sweat, finances to build a vineyard, a fully functioning Vineyard. If you had traveled through Israel around this time, you would have seen vineyards just like this. This is nothing uncommon. Everyone there listening, not only the leaders, but all the people who had traveled had probably seen vineyards on their way into Jerusalem. It was a very common thing. But what have probably would have gotten the attention of the scribes and elders and chief priests was that this was a clear allusion to Old Testament metaphors. If you go back to Isaiah chapter 5, Isaiah chapter 5 begins with a very similar metaphor. It says this. I'll just read it to you. Isaiah chapter 5 verse 1, he says, My beloved had built a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a vat in it. The idea of God building a vineyard, and the vineyard here represents Israel, and God is going through time to establish this this vineyard. He's going to build a watchtower to protect this vineyard. He's going to make sure that this can be a good vineyard. So it's very close to what Jesus is saying here with this parable. The people listening to Jesus would have understood exactly what Jesus was getting at, okay? They would have made the connections in their mind. The one who built the vineyard is representative of of God, and Israel is representative of the vineyard itself. In the Isaiah 5 passage, it goes on to say that the vineyard owner goes to the vineyard, and he looks for a nice crop, and what he finds is bad grapes, nothing good. There's, it's all wild and overgrown, and he can't take any of the harvest. It's a judgment section in Isaiah. And we'll see that this is actually exactly where Jesus is headed, except for he changes the metaphor a little bit. He adds a little bit to it. He adds something about tenants, and we'll get to that in a moment. But what this is indicating is this, listen, is that Israel is like a vineyard that God has established. Think of your Old Testament. 
God called Abraham. God, God called the patriarchs. God saved Israel out of bondage in Egypt. God gave Israel the law. God gave Israel the land. God gave Israel. God gave Israel. God established Israel. God continually was like a vineyard owner caring for and cultivating Israel, which is a vineyard. And so all of the Old Testament is kind of summed up in this idea that God, the vine owner, has taken ownership of Israel, the vine, and he's cultivated her, he's built her, he's protected her. And it says here that what did the vineyard owner do? In the metaphor, Jesus says that he gave this vineyard to tenants and he went to another country. You see that there? He gave it to tenants. Uh, to, to give a ten, or a, give a vineyard that you've cultivated to tenants... Farmers, you could think of them that way, was also a common practice. The idea was you buy the land, you till it, you cultivate it, you get the vineyard up and running, and then you can go on to other business ventures. You hire some farmers and sharecroppers, and they do a lot of the work for you. When harvest comes, you get a share, they get a share, it works out, it's a good business operation. This was common. So Jesus, again, saying this would have been very clear what was meant by it. And so as the listeners, as you're following, they're, they're putting together the meaning of this metaphor. Okay, so who's, okay, in, in the metaphor, God is the creator of the vineyard. Israel is the vineyard itself. Well, who are the, the tenants of the vineyard? Who, who are the farmers that are supposed to be caring for the vineyard? Well, that would be, and they th- I think they would have understood this, this would be the leaders of Israel. God has always decided to rule through human beings. Even when he created the world, he created, it's all his. He is the king of kings, and yet even in creation, he gave Adam and Eve the responsibility to rule and subdue the world. When he created Israel, he did the same thing. Israel is his chosen people, and God created and cultivated them, but then he gave leaders to Israel. Prophets and priests and judges and kings. And all throughout the Old Testament you read about the leaders of Israel ruling over Israel. And what are they supposed to do? They're supposed to cultivate God's people. Look at verse 2. They're supposed to make it fruitful. Verse 2 says, When the season came... That is the the season for harvest. When the season came, he sent, that is the owner, sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. Now you're following, right? You can start piecing together what that might mean in in terms of the metaphor. Okay, so God created this vineyard and he wants it to be fruitful. God created Israel. He wants Israel to what? Bear fruit. If you read through the Old Testament, this is all through it, that God is calling his people to be holy. Leviticus gives laws where Israel was to obey them, and in obeying them, they were to be holy, like God is holy. They were to reflect the very character of God in their dealings with one another, in their dealings with the world. Their holiness would show up outwardly, holy words, holy attitudes, holy relationships, holy aspirations, holy worship, holy obedience. It was fruitfulness that God expected, that he called his people to himself. He gave them holy laws. And he expected them to bear the fruit of holy lives. I think it would be quite obvious, particularly to these religious leaders who had heard this metaphor before, that they knew exactly what was being talked about. This is the idea. God made you. 
God created you. God created Israel. He, he has blessed you. He has called you. He's given you so much. And as he pours out his blessing on you, what does God expect? You see it in here. He expects fruitfulness. You see that? That God expects fruitfulness from his people. Friends, this is what he did with Israel. And this is what he does with his people in every age. This is what he does with us. Is that he gives and he gives And he gives blessing upon blessing, and he requires fruitfulness. That we are to be a people who are fruitful people. Not as a way to earn any kind of salvation from God, but as an expression of God's work in us. As an expression and demonstration of whose we are. We are God's people. So we live lives that are holy, reflecting his own character. He's doing this today. He calls us to himself. He calls us into Christ, plants us into Christ. He blesses us in innumerable ways. He gives and he gives and he gives. All that we have then, are we owners? The Bible doesn't call us owners. We are stewards. We have been given so much in all that we have in our lives. We are to, to give back to God, to bless him and to show him glory, to bear fruit in our lives of holiness, See, just as God is saying in this parable here to us, as Christ said to these people, it is a truism for all time that God calls people to himself. He creates them, he blesses them, and he expects a measure of fruitfulness given back to him as a demonstration of whose we are. We're to be holy as he is holy. I think this is something that we often forget. How many of us have forgotten this? That everything you have is from God. That every blessing you've ever experienced is from above, from a good Father who lavishes kindness upon undeserving people. That this is what was happening to Israel all throughout the Old Testament. It was that God was giving and giving and giving, and there was the expectation that they would be fruitful. We, too, have been given so much. How often... Do you recognize that all your good gifts are from God? And how often do you recognize that what you have is meant to be turned into fruitful obedience and worship of the one who has given you everything you own? That your abilities were given to you by God. That your wealth has been given to you by God. That your house has been given to you by God to be used for his glory. That your career has been given to you by God for his purposes. That your health has been given to you by God so that you might use your healthy body to live for his glory. That God has so blessed us. Think, Christian, how much has God given you? How kind and effusively generous has God been to you? I would even ask you, if you're not a Christian this morning, to consider your own life. There are so many things that you have that you could never have earned and never have worked for and never even have chosen. Did you choose who you were born to? What household you were raised in? What country you were born into? What society you've grown up in? There are so many aspects of our lives. We think we have so much control over our lives. 
How much control do we really have? How many things could we actually take credit for? According to the Bible, we know that all good gifts have come from God. And if you are not a Christian this morning, one of the things I'm here to tell you is that God has given you all good gifts so that you might recognize him as God and give him the worship that is due his name. Well, that's what was happening to Israel. Is that, and this was demonstrated in this little parable. Is that Israel had been chosen by God, loved by God, given so much from God. And the leaders, these tenants that were supposed to lead Israel, were supposed to lead them into a life of fruitfulness and service of God and demonstrating God's holiness in their own lives. But look what's going to happen here. This is our second point. Israel's rejection. Look at verse 3. It says that they took the servant. So there's a, the servant that the owner sends to go get that harvest. They're going to get the harvest. They're going to bring some back to the owner. The owner will get his share. And those who have worked are going to get a little bit of their share. It works both ways. But the servant shows up to get the share. And verse 3 says, They took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. How would you like that to be working out in your own business partnerships? That your business partner suddenly is turned on you. The moment you begin to try to get your share that is rightly yours, he turns on you. He begins accusing you. He maybe begins ignoring you. He's ghosting you. He wants nothing to do with you. And he's actually going to try to take everything that you've done and turn it into his own personal profit and leave you out of it. This would be a scandal in this, in today's age. It would have been absolutely outrageous in Jesus' day. I mean, there were contracts and agreements and documents that would have made it clear how this was supposed to work. And here, this is them completely shaming the servant, and not only shaming the servant, but of course, shaming the one who sent them, right? They say, the, the, the owner then, it says, it sends him another servant. He sent him a second one. What do they do to him? They strike him on the head. They beat him on the head, and they treat him shamefully. Okay, so what does the owner do? The owner sends another one. Maybe you think the owner should be getting it right now. He's not treating my servants really well. Maybe you should go yourself. Well, not yet. Here's what's happening. He sends another one. He sends another one. And this one, it says there in verse 5, or not in verse 5, sorry. It says there in verse 4, he sent to them another servant, and they struck him on the head, treated him shamefully, and he sent them another, and to him they killed. It's, it's getting worse, isn't it? It's not only that he's getting empty-handed, not only now that they're getting beat, it's now that they are beginning to kill the servants that the owner is sending. It's getting violent. And then the end of verse 5 shows that it's not only one that this happened to, or two, or even three, that this was happening again and again and again. Look at that. And so with many others, many others, I mean, this vine owner, just, or vineyard owner, just doesn't seem to get it, does he? He just keeps sending them. Some they beat. Some they killed. They just continually reject them. What's going on here? What does this indicate in the story? What is this metaphor here pointing to? Well, the Greek word for servant here is doulos, which means slave. And the Hebrew equivalent of doulos was the word ebed. Ebed means servant. Ebed means slave. 
And in the Old Testament Hebrew, it was a formal way to speak about a prophet. It would be to call him a servant of Yahweh, a servant or a slave of Yahweh. Prophets were designated servants, ebeds of Yahweh, servants of the Lord. The people listening to Jesus, these religious leaders, would have understood that the parallel was clear, that the servants that the vineyard owner is sending represented what? Prophets. And how did Israel do handling the prophets that God sent them? It was never good. In other words, what Jesus is doing in this short period of time, I mean, this would have taken him a matter of seconds to explain. He's encapsulating nearly the entirety of the Old Testament. That as God called Israel to himself and then sent leaders to wayward Israel, or sorry, prophets to wayward Israel, that these prophets were one by one ignored, rejected, they were hated, they were abused, and even some were killed. They were murdered. They would rather murder the messenger than listen to the message. That's how far the depravity of Israel went. If you go back and think of some Old Testament history, uh, I'll name a few. Zechariah, the son of Jehoiada, was stoned to death. 2 Corinthians 24. Uriah died by the sword. Jeremiah 26. Jeremiah was beaten and put in stocks. That's Jeremiah 20. Amos was forced to flee for his life. Amos chapter 7. Micaiah got slugged in the face. How'd you like to have that happen to you? I suppose it's better than what happened to Isaiah. It says Isaiah was sawn in half with a wooden saw. That's according to uh, tradition uh, that the, the records that we have say that that's how the prophet Isaiah died. We know what happened to the last Old Testament prophet, John the Baptist. He was beheaded. This is a, this is a condensed version of Israel's history. That Israel was called by God, loved by God, nurtured by God, cultivated by God, like a vineyard, like a farmer cultivating a vineyard. And then it's not bearing fruit, and so God is sending these prophets again and again with every prophet that God sends. The prophet is rejected. In fact, at the end of the Old Testament, Second Chronicles verse 30, or chapter 36, verses 15 and 16, summarizes... It this way, the Lord, the God of their fathers, sent persistently to them by his messengers because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. On his dwelling place. But they kept mocking the messengers of God, despising his words and scoffing at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord rose against his people until there was no remedy. Over hundreds of years of Israel's time, there described in the Old Testament, prophet after prophet after prophet was sent by God to call Israel back, to warn Israel, calling them, turn from your wickedness, return to the Lord. There is forgiveness from God if you repent and trust in the one who made you and called you and loves you. Come to him. But they kept killing the prophets. I want you to consider a few things here about the nature of God. Consider how active God is. God is like the ultimate outreacher, the ultimate sender, the best sending agency, the ultimate evangelist. 
repeatedly calling prophets to himself and sending them to his people? Go. He didn't send one. He didn't send two. It wasn't even a small handful. If you were to try to count all the prophets in the Old Testament, including the schools of the prophets that appear in the historical books, you would have hundreds of prophets that God has called, that God gave a message, that God sent to his people to go and tell them who he is and what he requires of them. God is sending and sending and sending, calling people to himself, calling them to repentance. Over the course of centuries, he doesn't give up. He's calling them to himself. Do you know why, by the way, God is such an outreaching God? You ever thought about this? Do you realize how many of us would come to God without him coming to us? None. Nobody. We will not be saved if it's up to us figuring out God and coming to him. No one will. I like how Augustine put it in his confessions. He said that each one of us, because of sin... And because of our fallenness, we are curved in on ourselves. The image is graphic. We are like people who have been bent sideways, no longer looking upward for God and his glory and his purposes. Rather, we look inward for selfishness, our own glory, our own comforts, our own desires. We're not naturally searching for God. No one is. Not Israel, not us. God comes. God speaks. God sends prophets. God sends messengers who announce his message to the world that those who hear could come in faith, in repentance, and experience salvation. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Romans 8, 8. We Christians are here this morning not because... We are the intellectual elite who figured out God and how to approach him. Get to talk to some of us. We're definitely not the intellectual elite. We are people who Paul would call in 1 Corinthians 1, the lowly, the foolish, the the nobodies, and the nothings. And the only reason any of us have ever been saved is because God in his grace came to us in the gospel and the power of the Holy Spirit grabbed us by the heart, turned us inside out, gave us a new life, gave us a new mind, gave us his own spirit that we might be his people. God comes to us. This is an amazing reality. We are not here because we deserved it, because we earned it, because we figured it out. We are here worshiping Jesus because we were lost, hopeless, dead in our own trespasses and sins, deceived and darkened in our minds. And God, by his grace, sent us somehow, some way, every one of you who believes the gospel, somehow, some way, God got the gospel to you. He brought it to you. How active was he in all of his providential overseeing of the whole world to ensure that you got the gospel, that you responded. God with Israel was sending them prophet after prophet after prophet after prophet, and they were rejecting him. There is good news, though. If you are not yet a Christian, you're here this morning because God has a message for you. And that he has been active in your life to bring you to this point right now. So that you might know that he has made a way for you to be saved through his son. 
His son died on the cross so sinners like me and you could repent and trust in him that our sins can be forgiven, paid for in full on that cross. And he rose from the dead and he's alive right now. And anyone who in faith looks to the cross will experience full and complete forgiveness of sins. That message is available for you to believe right now. Because God is active in spreading his word throughout all the globe. I also want you to notice this. How patient is God? How patient is God? What would you do if you were the vineyard owner? When you heard that your first servant that you sent got treated shamefully and sent back empty-handed, how would you respond? What do they think they're doing? Who do they think they are? I'm going to go set things right right now. And God sends another. And another. And when you understand what this is referring to, the Old Testament story, you understand that this is referring to hundreds of years of patience. How patient is God, church? Have you reflected on the patience of God? Paul, in 1 Timothy chapter 1, ascribes his salvation to the fact that Jesus Christ has perfect patience. Christian, go back in your life a little bit. Rewind to those days before you were saved. And even the attitude you had before you were saved about God. The attitude you had before you were saved about Jesus the attitude you had before you were saved about his word. And aren't you glad that God was patient with you? How patient was he with you? What if God took your first refusal as a final refusal and left you to stay where you were forever? What if God took your resolute determination never to know his word and never to follow his son Jesus as a final resolution? Where would you be now? Oh, we would all be lost, wouldn't we? We would be lost if God was not patient. And Christian, think of your God now and how patient he is with you every day. Is he patient with you? How patient is he with you? How patient? And isn't that an encouragement for you to know that he will be eternally and infinitely patient toward his children? He is so patient with you that each and every day you do things that are not according to his word. Thoughts that you have and words that you say and ways that you treat one another and attitudes that you express that are not godly. We all have these areas in our lives that are sinful and offensive to our Father. And how patient is He to never leave us, to endure with us with great patience and long-suffering, to even in love move toward us and to sanctify us and to give us blessings that we could never deserve. Christian, nothing will go wrong with you as you look to God and you rest in His patience. There is so much solace there in peace there, to know that he is being patient with you. And you might be discouraged. Any of you discouraged this morning at how slow your own sanctification is? 
Like, man, I was supposed to be up here 10 years ago, and I'm still back here. I'm still struggling with this? Really? And you complain to God, why, God? Why am I still doing this? And aren't you glad that he's patient with you? Oh, church, I am so glad that God has been patient with me. It is a truth I need to remind myself each and every day. He is not going to get so fed up with me as his child that he will abandon me. He will never do that to his children. Church, he will not abandon you. If you're not a Christian, God has been patient with you, hasn't he? You're here this morning. You're hearing about God's willingness to keep sending the message. You can even see it in the text. And he sent another. And he sent another. And he sent another. And he sent many more. And here you are this morning, hearing it again. The message of a God who wants to save sinners. That's what you're hearing. A God who sends his message out in the, in the world to gather up his people. You're hearing it this morning because God wants you to respond to that message. God, through his word, pleads with sinners, according to 1 Corinthians or 2 Corinthians 5. He's being patient with all of us because it is by his very nature to be patient. Look at verse 6. He had still one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them saying, they will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. This is the most outrageous of all. Look at that word there, the beloved son. It has the idea not only of the son being loved of the father, but of being totally unique and different, set apart from all the other servants who went. That this son is not merely another prophet. He does come with the same message as the rest, but he comes with a different status, a different position. He is utterly unique. He is the beloved, unique son of the vineyard owner. And also notice this. There's one more. There's a, there's a tone of finality, isn't there? There's no more after this one. This is the last one. From a human perspective, this would seem like a foolish move for the vineyard owner. They killed all the rest. What do they think they're going to do with your son? And what happens, of course, is that the tenants take them. It says they threw them out of the vineyard. This is describing something that would have been a heinous offense to any Jew. Because in this culture, you, what did you do with your dead? You, you buried them. Here they're throwing the corpse out of the vineyard, no burial. This is a shameful way to offend the vineyard owner. Brutal. It's a gory ending, a, a dead body being thrown out of a vineyard. And I bet as Jesus is starting to wrap up this parable, you could hear a pin drop in the temple. They did what? 
And if they're listening, the leaders there, the, the, the scribes, the, the chief priests, elders, they know who the vineyard owner is. It's God. They know who the vineyard is. It's Israel. They know who the servants are. It's the prophets. Now they've got two more questions to answer. Who are these tenants? And who is the son? And do you think, I mean, Jesus is masterful, isn't he? He's got them. It's like this is, the, the, the parable is the line. The story is the bait. And this question he asks at the end is the hook that gets them. What do you think the owner will do? What will the owner of the vineyard do? What we actually know is that the leaders who are listening to Jesus right here, they're picking it up, what Jesus is laying down. They, they know it. Because you know it, you know they know it, because look at verse 12. Their response is not repentance. Their response is to seek to arrest him. Why? Because they feared the people. Watch this. For they perceived that he had told the parable against them. Oh, they're getting it. Wait, wait, wait. We're the, we're the wicked tenants, you're saying? You, you say we're going to do this? And they also knew that Jesus was claiming to be that son, wasn't he? In fact, the entirety of the Gospel of Mark has been making the case that Jesus is the Son of God. From the very first verse, Mark 1.1, the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Chapter 1, the section about the baptism. What does it say? The Father speaks to the Son. This is my beloved Son, with whom I'm well pleased. What happens at the transfiguration? This is my beloved Son. What's the biggest problem that the religious elite have with Jesus over and over and again? It's that he's making himself one with God. He's forgiving sins like only God can do. He's presenting himself as the beloved, unique Son of God. He is presenting himself as the Messiah himself. The ones listening to the parable absolutely knew what Jesus was giving getting at. They understood that Jesus was indicting them. They had to come as the story began to funnel into a point. They realized exactly what Jesus was saying and what they were saying was, I am the beloved son. I am the one who has come from the father. I am the unique one and the last one and the best of all to come bring the message of God's requirements of humanity. And you are the wicked tenants. And you have been leading Israel astray. You have been doing violence to God's people. And you will pay. It's right there in the verses. So we come to the third section in verse 9. God's judgment. The question, I mentioned a couple weeks ago that asking questions is one of the best ways to teach. Can you see what he's doing here? What will the owner of the vineyard do? Imagine he just lets that sit for a little bit. And makes, he makes his listeners answer. What do you think the owner of the vineyard will do? In Matthew's account of this, it talks about the, the crowd actually begins answering. It's almost as if they were so caught up in the story themselves, they just start blurting out answers. And in Matthew, they go, oh, they're going to put those wretches to a miserable death. In Mark, Jesus, imagine there's a pause, and then Jesus 
says there, he will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read? He points back. This is ironic. Of course, the scribes devoted their entire lives to reading and studying the Old Testament. This is a little jab Jesus throws in there to remind them that they actually do not know the word of God that they claim to know. Have you not read the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. He quotes Psalm 118. Why is he doing this? In the, in the passage in Psalm 118, it's very much understood to be a messianic section of the psalm where this idea of a cornerstone, and the cornerstone could really either mean one of two things. It's either the foundation stone upon which everything else is built, or it's the capstone which holds everything together. In either case, it is the most important stone of an entire building. That's what he's getting at. And the idea was that these builders are going away, or going ahead, building a building, a temple structure, and they find the stone. They don't see any need for it. They cast it aside, and they continue building. And in the psalm, it's saying that this stone that you rejected, that the builders rejected, has actually become the most important stone. And interpreted messianically, it came to be that the Messiah will come. He will be the most important piece of Israel's temple, and it will be rejected by the builders. The Messiah will be rejected. That is what is saying, and Jesus had expected them to know that, to have studied Psalm 118 in such a way that they understood it to be referring about the Messiah. The point is, Jesus is saying he will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. That the rejection of God's Son results in the coming of God's judgment. What is God really like? What do you think? How did you come to hold those ideas that you have about God? Have you tried to convince yourself that God would never judge anyone? Have you thought that Jesus, meek and mild, would never suggest such a thing as that? If you don't know the answers to the questions of what is God really like and how do we know, you have to figure that out. The way that you do is by listening to the Son who came. It's the final messenger to reveal the Father to us. And here, Jesus himself is saying very clearly, and and, and mind you, note who he's talking to. He's talking to people who thought themselves to know God who are guilty of murder ten times over because they rejected the very Son of God. He's talking to people who thought they were good. Do you think you're a good person? Verse 9, he will come 
God will come. God himself will enter into judgment with those who've rejected his son. Think about this. The holy creator of everything that has ever existed, the one who knows you perfectly, intimately, the one who can see your thoughts, the one who knows the motivations of your heart, the judge of the secrets will enter into judgment with you one day. And with those who have rejected the Son, says that the Father will destroy them. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants. He will come and destroy those who have rejected his son. In this context, he will come and destroy the leaders of Israel who are misleading his people. They will face judgment. Jesus is perfectly loving, which is why he warns these people. There is a judgment for those who come to hear the message and hear the message and reject the message. You know, sometimes love looks like warning. When the house is on fire, you shout. You say, get out. There's a fire. Save your life. Flee. And Jesus here is warning of a coming judgment where Israel and we know that all people will stand before the judge. What the parable is getting at is that God has been so kind to Israel. God established Israel, planted Israel, cultivated Israel, protected Israel, gave and gave to Israel, was patient with Israel, sent messengers to Israel, begged Israel, repent and turn through the prophets year after year, century after century, generation upon generation. God was sending his word to them, and they continually rejected it. And I wonder if there's any parallel here. There most certainly is. God has been kind to you, hasn't he? God has been patient with you. He has given you day after day and year after year sunrises and sunsets and innumerable blessings you could never earn yourself. He has been active in giving you his message. There's Bibles printed all over the globe. You probably have several in your house. You probably got one on your phone. You can access it anywhere you want. The message has been coming to you from every angle. The fact that you're here this morning, however you got here, you've been brought in under the providence of God that you might hear the message again. He has been active to pursue you. He has been patient over the years of your life. And again, not to... All these other things even pale in comparison to the fact that he sent his son to make salvation open and free and available for anyone who would come and trust him. That you don't have to earn it. You don't have to accomplish anything to attain it. You have to let go of everything else in repentance and look to Christ and Christ alone for forgiveness. It's free. The gates of paradise have been swung open wide that you may receive them. And would you refuse this God. That is what was happening here. The perfect patience and kindness of God was being refused again and again and again. 
I wonder if there are any of you this morning that are like these wicked tenants. God has given you everything that you have. God has continued to send you his word. God has been immeasurably patient. God has swung open the gates of heaven through his son Jesus that you might by faith enter in. Cain, the son of God, died and rose again. He calls you, come, come, come. Would you refuse him? Some will. Friend, if you're here this morning and you haven't repented and trusted in Christ, it will not be because you were not warned. Warning has come. God's message is clear. Salvation is yours if you would take it by faith. The final message. The Son is the final messenger. And there will come a day that those who have rejected Christ will no longer have any opportunity to hear the gospel. There will come a day, and I hope this is not the day for you, but for some there will be the final time, the last time to hear the message. Because their condemnation will be complete. But the good news is that if you're not a believer, you're here this morning, and salvation is free, that Christ died and rose and lives to accomplish salvation for all those who repent and believe in him. Trust him today. Who does he give the vineyard to? You see that in verse 9. He he gives it to others is all it says. He gives it to others. Who are the others? The others are the ones who receive the son. The others are the ones who don't reject him. Salvation comes to those who, who embrace Christ as their only hope, as their Savior, as their righteousness, as their Lord. They turn away from trusting everything else. All their religious activities, all the things they've done, and all their efforts are nothing. They trust in Christ. And they are saved. Let's pray. Thank you for sending your son, Father. In this Christmas season, we're reminded about that fact, that in the incarnation you became a man, you lived among us, that we might be reconciled to you. Pray that those who have not received the son, whether they're old whether it's a child sitting here listening to this message, Father, I pray that they would receive you and experience the joy of salvation and that those of us who have been given salvation, we would be in awe of your love and compassion and patience that you demonstrated in saving us. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.